but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. The existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. Dr. Michael Yang is an integrative medicine specialist based in Los Angeles who specializes in ketamine treatment. I had an absolute blast with Michael and honestly feel like a renewed sense of optimism for the medical system, just knowing that there are doctors like him out there treating patients. In this conversation, you can expect to learn ketamine's clinical usages and its role as a psychedelic in his clinical practice, how to increase what he calls the squishiness of your brain, why suffering might actually make us uniquely human, his primer on Aztec existentialist philosophy, the incredible benefits of inducing awe in patients, and much, much more. Okay, without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging, deeply fascinating conversation with Dr. Michael Yang. I made the decision to work with sponsors for this podcast, and there are two main reasons for this. The first is that it helps me dedicate more time and resources to having deep dive conversations like this one and hopefully growing the show. And the second is that there are a few companies that have honestly made a big difference in my life. And since I consider them to be just such a huge value add, I'm genuinely excited to talk about what they offer and I hope they'll be useful to you as well. First up is Inside Tracker. One of the things that I've changed my mind on in the past year or so is the value of getting blood panels taken on a regular basis, ideally every six months, according to Dr. Peter Atiyah. This is opposed to waiting until you have an actual health issue. Inside Tracker tests your blood, your DNA, and they basically provide clear science-backed recommendations around nutrition, exercise, supplements, and lifestyle recommendations. They've also recently added hormone testing alongside a bunch of other really important biomarkers that aren't typically included in traditional blood panels, and APOB is a good example. And for myself, despite generally feeling pretty great, my most recent set of results show that I have some pretty major work to do to reduce levels of inflammation. So I'll be following some of their dietary and supplement recommendations to hopefully address this. So I really recommend making this something that you make time for at least once or twice per year. And you can save 20% at insidetracker.com forward slash curious humans. That's insidetracker.com forward slash curious humans. Next up, we have The Plunge. I reached out to the founder of The Plunge, Ryan, after hearing his personal story on Danny Miranda's podcast. And I've shared many times how getting in icy cold water every day helps me to move through some pretty intense grief in the past. And it taught me what it meant to surrender. And these days I use their plunge pretty much every single day. It's, it's basically like a high stakes meditation or a mirror to my own internal state. And the plunge team have done a phenomenal job architecting what I really consider to be the best cold plunge in the world. And it doesn't get grimy, unlike the, the converted chest freezers that I used to use. And for optimal health benefits, I recommend doing this deliberate cold exposure for 
about 11 minutes per week in total. And if you're interested, you can save $150 on their full unit at plunge.com forward slash curious. That's plunge.com forward slash curious. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast, Michael. How are you feeling in this moment in three words? Energized, excited, optimistic. <laughs> optimistic? Optimistic well, question mark? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really excited to have you here. And based on uh, the conversation we had before I just hit record, I think this is going to be a, a friggin' phenomenal conversation. But before we get into all that good stuff, I like to begin this conversation by asking, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, do you remember a story about something you were curious about? Oh, categorically, yes. That has been my downfall. <laughs> this is so fantastically Freudian. The first thing that popped to mind, just in the interest of being transparent, I will tell you, my mother was a um, clinical neuropsych PhD uh, in Soviet. I was born in Russia. This was the Soviet era. And the first, this is so embarrassing. This is, my credibility is just going to go out the window, but I can, I'm going to commit to it anyway. She tells a story about how when I was whatever, like 18 months being potty trained in the beautiful city of St. Petersburg, she walked in and I had just had my baby poop smeared all over the bathroom. <laughs> so curious. Yeah, I'm sure I, from a very young age, just trouble via curiosity. Yeah, to maybe paint a slightly less absurd picture. We discovered psychedelics very early to just jump right into what I think we'll be talking about here in a second. Very early. I grew up in a very unusual household. There were, I referenced my mom a lot to, to be honest, because she has somehow managed to be accidentally on the forefront of everything. I, I, I honestly, like everything when it came to health and wellness. And she was in the Soviet Union, she was getting her clinical neuropsych PhD, which was such a big deal back then. It was much more exciting than medicine because it was this era of blending um, new neurology with sort of theoretical uh, psychology, psychiatry. So she worked at the Pavlov Institute. And so she had this background. So I grew up in that environment. But then there were always books of like, the Vedas were thrown around. There was like Jung all over the place. There was yoga books all over the place which it turns out I learned later in life is not what the traditional household looks like. So, <laughs> so I grew up with all this other kind of stuff to where everything, all these things that now 40 years later, our patients or friends or people come up to me and say, you're not going to believe it. I went and I took a mushroom trip. And I was like, yeah, you're 30 years behind the curve. Good for you. Fantastic. I love it. So yeah, shockingly curious. And I've studied a lot of different, a lot of different domains. I was a history guy originally in university and then went into medicine and then did PhD work in mental health. And just, we've done so many wonderful things kind of all over the place. So yeah, the curiosity for me is probably the most important, most interesting thing about being a person, to be honest, for me, like that intellectual thing is just like a hundred percent of everything. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, so I'm really curious about your journey, uh, like, like to, you know, what you're doing today. And, and was it that drew you about history? And then how did you make the transition from being the history guy into mental health, PhD, like neuroscience land? 
I grew up an only child. I grew up an only child. Uh, I have a, a sister who came along 19 years later, who is a wonderful, special, angelic little MD who just graduated medical school a year ago. Whoop, whoop. She's magical. But for 19 years, I was solo. And so I had a friend of mine in high school who was a couple years older than me who I admired so, so deeply. And he was the sort of older brother figure for me. And I went off to college. And in picking my major, I consulted him. And he was at Berkeley. And we all kind of grew up slightly radicalized on the west side of Los Angeles, west side of in Santa Monica, a bunch of lefties. It was a little different then. It wasn't the sort of super rich, glamorous tech hub that it is now where everything was shockingly unaffordable. It was uh, still very much a melting pot. So there's a lot of immigrants. There was a lot of low income. There's high income. It was an incredible experience, truly, to have spent, to have gone to high school there. And I called him up. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm a history guy. And I said, well, maybe that's what I'll do. He said, yeah, you should do it. And it really fit in with my ethos then. And to be frank, my ethos now, which is I have a real, I don't know, are we allowed to say these things? I have a real sort of Marxist orientation. Um, and I can qualify that. I can, oh, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to now. Oh, sweet. What have I done? All, all, all these listeners out there like, okay, I'm going to stop listening now. What have I done? No, no. I've, he was just a historian. He was just, a, why is, no one gets mad about Schopenhauer. No one gets mad about Schopenhauer. Honestly, he writes like, you know, two books with a couple ideas and just people now. It's wild. It's wild. <laughs> anyway. History for me satisfied that curiosity itch so much. And I dove into it really hard and I studied across the spectrum. I studied Asian history, Latin American history, I studied European history, modern, ancient. I took enough coursework to have completed over two degrees worth of history. <laughs> to you know, which you know, maybe that speaks to the fact that I should have done other things, but but that history, history is everything. It's just everything that happened up until this very second. So it's all historical. So I did political history, economic history. I did social history. So all these things across various domains. And man, you can answer a lot of questions if you just dive into the stacks. I spent a lot of time in the libraries, just reading and reading and reading and reading. And that's what that was. And that served as an interesting foundation. I never thought I'd go into anything medical. I thought I would go into... Fine, international finance, if you can believe that. Uh, if you're an immigrant, I think that there are two itches you want to scratch, and they're usually independent of each other in a lot of ways. You want to come from a poor place and be rich in America, or that you take kind of these intellectual curiosities and you become an academic. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was torn in both ways. I left undergrad and I went back to Russia. I worked in a little venture capital private equity set up very briefly. Um, it's really exciting. It's when uh, like Soviet time was transitioning over to Russian time, which meant that all these technologies that were formerly government stuff were now in private hands. So you can imagine incredibly dynamic time, really, really cool, really cool. I left and moved to the Bay, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. I worked for Elon. I worked for Elon's first company before PayPal, which dates me uh, quite a bit. But I was his sales guy for all of San Francisco. It was a very poor match. I, not me and him. I, I, To be honest, I met him once for a split second. I knew his brother and all this stuff. Coincidentally, how do I know Boulder? 
his, his I brother was lives this... here, right? I, I think that's his brother right. lives on a, on a ranch here, yeah. That's right. Kimball, so Kimball's right-hand man, who also lives in Boulder, I hadn't seen for 20 years. And I showed up at an event in Boulder uh, maybe, I don't know, five, six years ago, maybe even. I don't know, COVID time, six, seven years ago. I don't know. And I met him in this conference. And I saw him on a Friday. And I said, I know you. I know you. And we went through the whole thing. And he was very patient until he stopped being very patient because I literally ran through every single possible permutation of how do I know you game? And then Sunday, Sunday after he sort of like, you know, left me alone for two days, a weirdo that wouldn't stop stalking him. He comes up to me on Sunday evening. We're at kind of the final mixer thing. And he says, Michael Yang. I said, yeah. And he's like, zip two. I said, yes. And he turned out he was my direct manager, supervisor. It was the Musk boys, him, and then me. I was the head of sales and he was the guy that was seeing over that. I don't even, I don't remember anybody's title at that point. I don't know. We're all, t- I was literally 22. Talk about like woefully unprepared for such a high powered position. And we connected. And so that was like my whole Elon, Kimball, Boulder, blah, blah, blah thing. It's just this wonderful coincidence. And to which I said, I told you I knew you. I told you, I told you. And then we just had a really good laugh and it, it was wild. It's just, there's no reason it should have happened. And 20 years later, we it, it happened. I can be prone to tangents. <laughs> That's great. That I, I mean, that, that would be an alternative name for this podcast is like, is like curious tangents. <laughs> I think that happens a lot. Um, but to, to bring us on track briefly, um, how did you transition into like exploring the mind, mental health, like, like these things? What was the link there? I ended up leaving the Bay Area. I moved back to Los Angeles. I wanted to get an MBA. I thought that was the way forward. I ended up getting stuck here. I ended up at my mother's clinic, uh, which I grew up in not liking because it was weird. And I was a kid and we were Russians and it was the Cold War. And you want to just fit in and be, you know, hot dogs and baseball and thinking none of that, none of that at all. And then I changed. I saw that, that her patients loved her and they would bring her baked goods and this all made sense. And I was like, you know what, maybe let me give this a whirl. And so that was my transition. And then, you know, kind of one thing led to another and 20 years later, here we are and uh, I run our clinic. So what was her clinic is not my clinic. It's a multi-specialty group. We do predominantly mental health, pain management stuff, functional stuff, a lot of that. So what has now become very common, and I would even say over the last maybe two or even just two or three years, thank you very much, Instagram, we have been plying for 20 years, um, which by the way, is no small point of frustration. Here we go. Brief tangent. I'll keep it short. My God, is it frustrating to see the pace at which medicine develops? The things that we were talking about 20 years ago and getting looked at like we had a third eye growing out of our third eye, as it were. Uh, now, fish oil. I'm not talking about weird stuff. I'm talking about fish oil, literally fish oil. It's like, listen, cardiovascular health, fish oil. I said, that's stupid. And then now it's prescription strength and you can get it covered on your insurance. And I said, where were you guys? And what the frustrating part is, is that they will now look at you and act like they own it. And I'm like, well, of course. I said, no, no, no. I was at a barbecue with you. Not of course. So, and I understand, needless to say, I understand the necessity for slow, methodical development, safety. I'm not immune to any of that. That would be insane. But on a personal note, I think we all just want the best for, for people in general. And we wish that things would go at a, at a faster pace sometimes. 
Yeah, no, um, that's beautiful. So before we hit record, you made a statement that, that really caught my attention. And the statement was, we have solved mental health care in a meaningful way. And I think that is a superb kind of jumping off point to a whole barrage of questions that, that I have. But for listeners, can you unpack that? Like, what do you mean by we've solved mental health care in a meaningful way? I will do my best to defend that statement. I think that we have solved mental health care for a certain segment of the population. I know what that sounds like. I understand the gravity of what that statement is, and I hope I'm right. I, I feel like we're in the very early stages of it. But what I also mentioned to you, and, and this for me is so exciting, truly not in the way that people, oh, this is so exciting, not in the way that like a ride in a new car is exciting, like exciting in the way that like... <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> a new epoch of history is, is exciting <laughs> in, the, in the way that we use the word awesome to describe a tidal wave not like a hot dog that's delicious uh, <laughs> this hot dog is awesome no 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 no. a tsunami is awesome right uh, supernovae are awesome that we run ketamine practice a part of, of what we do at the clinic and it is now my my focus and very happily my focus and it is the culmination, I believe, of my entire curiosity journey. Can we say that? Does that make sense? Because I was going to say academic or professional, but it's everything. I mean, I feel like from soup to nuts, everything is funneling into this one thing. Since the day you were smearing shit on the on the wall of your since <laughs> the very first day, it's all culminated in this. And I think that's important because what does it mean to change our minds? It's a massive endeavor because we are geared culturally, biologically, physiologically. Is that redundant? I don't know. You know what I mean? We're geared to not change, I would say. And if we do, it's it's slow. It's evolutionary. It's I, I don't want to get bogged down and get a bunch of you know weird people saying, well, you didn't use that word correctly. I'm like, just kind of allow me to, to not be hyper-technical to say that how many people do you know that have been in therapy for 20 years and are still that same guy? Let me ask you that question. For me, the answer is a lot. Yeah, it's, a lot. It's, it's definitely pretty common. Why? What is it? Well, they're not changing. Okay. So certainly that tells us that tons of time and tons of resources aren't sufficient in many cases to make meaningful change. And I'll get pushback saying, well, you know what? Maybe we've maxed out that person's capability, anhedonia, dopamine receptors, blah, 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 whatever. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I believe that change is possible. I believe that meaningful, substantial change is possible. I think that you just need a lot of time and commitment. And like I said before, I don't mean commitment like bootstrap it. It's on you. If you fail, you're a bad person. No, that's insane. It takes a village in the literal sense. I'm sure we agree on this is that the community and lack of community is such a critical piece of why we are where we are. We can do marks right here. I mean, here's an interesting sort of historical snapshot, right? It's that alienation component of the way that we are. Um, I really shy away the, from the word capitalism. It's just too triggering at this point. When I was younger, it wasn't. It was just a, a state of a word to describe the current state of economic affairs. Now it's become something much bigger. So I say in our current socioeconomic environmental climate, we in many ways seem to struggle with community element that seems very much built into the grain of who we are. And I'll land the plane. I promise you I'll land the plane. Hold on. I'll get there. 
the picture is just the picture is just broad, right? The picture is vast, and that's why it doesn't hold up well to uh, 140 characters, right? We have to be able to take in the whole the whole picture. And what have we done? We have taken the springboard of psychedelics, what that means in terms of making the brain squishy. That's a word I use all the time. And dislodging, if we look at personality from a memory structure standpoint, right? Ever since Freud, we've, before Freud, frankly, but let's just, you know, we can back it up to 100 years, go to Freud, 150 years, and say that the memories that form the basis of who we are are hard to dislodge. We can talk about it and talk about it and talk about it, and we will have us, we will struggle to make significant changes to dislodge those memories. You can, it's very tricky to solve a feely problem with a talky solution, right? So we get into phenomenology, experience, the ineffable. Patients will come out and I can happily admit this. I will go to bat and say that if you're prescribing as a any kind of clinician, if you're prescribing ketamine or psychedelics and you've never done them, I don't know what we're doing. I don't know what we're doing. The number of times I've heard this from different therapists, whatever. Oh yeah, sure. I can talk about this with a patient. I said, what is there to talk about? They have touched the face of God and you have not. It's like a virgin talking about sex. <laughs> That's going to be the, the title of this podcast. I love that. <laughs> I, well, I'll tell you what my next book is called, Scared and Horny. <laughs> I, I swear to God. I, I Listen, if that doesn't encapsulate the entire human experience, I don't know what it does. <laughs> you tell me. It's not, is Scared and Horny not basically like the through line for everything? So it's an ineffable experience because we need that to dislodge the things that hold us back. I'll tell patients all the time, very much jokingly, obviously, they come in and they don't feel good. They're depressed. And I'll qualify to say this is not a suicidal level depressed patient. Of course, this would be a crazy thing to say, but I, you know, give me a little bit of, of lane to say that if somebody comes in they're they're feeling sad, they're feeling kind of sad. And I say, if I put a gram of cocaine in your nose right now, will you feel sad for the next 40 minutes? No, no, just no, categorically no. Okay, well then what does that mean? If you come in here with a diabetic ulcer and I gave you a gram of cocaine, do you still have a diabetic ulcer? Yes, yes, absolutely. So what does that tell us about the nature of the thing? I think it's, it's very curious. And can we dislodge temporarily or again make squishy some of these notions and then go in there aggressively by which i mean lovingly but persistently persi aggressive in that right in terms of quantity can we give somebody something to think about and ruminate on in a way that will change their mind like we said at the beginning right the, the one of the elements of zen meditation is the koan a poem a story it makes sense. It doesn't make sense. It makes sense at first, then it doesn't make sense. But that's not the point. The point is you give the brain something to fixate on, fixate on, and it just chews and chews and chews and chews and chews. And it's not about the sound of one hand clapping. What does that resolve? Literally nothing. But that focus, that focus is the thing that can transform on in a way that I don't understand. I don't know. I think this is the thing that neuroscience is trying to crack right? That circuitry, the you know default mode network, blah, blah, blah. We, we throw all these words around. I don't know. We're not there yet. 
boy, is it interesting and absolutely over my pay grade at this point. You know, it's, it's hard to keep up with anything that's happening. But the Vedas talked about it 3,000 years ago, the hierarchy of consciousness, right? We exist up until the point from sensory to interpretation of the sensory to the egoic levels. And yet we get this glimpse of something beyond, right? That's That doesn't have words, that everyone has felt it to varying degrees. I think that it's very safe to say that we touch, if we are to believe 3,000 years of mystics, the average person scrapes at the very edge of it sometimes. And no, it's not when you're playing tennis. I'll qualify that because I, I love, I play tennis three times a week. I love it. And people talk about the zone. People say, oh, I meditate. I get into the zone when I'm on the treadmill. I said, no, 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 no. That's different. I would argue you're actually sliding in the opposite direction, not in a bad way. Like you're sliding into the animal level of consciousness where you are detaching and you're using the brain to get into those fine motor just like that zone thing. And that's beautiful. And it's very cool. But I don't, th I think it's heading in the opposite direction where what we're describing is getting into some sort of altered state that gives you a glimpse of a, a higher consciousness. Many people will dispute this. The materialists will dispute this. That's absolutely fine. It's a serotonin HT2A receptor that gives you this perception of a higher blah, blah, blah. We can talk about that for years. I don't know if it's really fruitful because if I can take a moment to go down yet another little side road, a patient asked me this week, young guy, 26, history of depression. He says, why? Why bother? Why this? And not in a dramatic way, just in a very matter of fact way. What's the point? And I said, well, I think you have two rational choices. One is hedonic, right? Make money, get boats, have fun. You have 85 years and then it's over. If you, we killed God 150 years ago, sorry, God, whoops. And then if you don't believe in, again, I'm ready for the pushback. If you don't believe in some sort of meaningful post-death experience of some variety, then everything's up for grabs. If you're screaming into a deaf universe and you zoom out to cosmic scale, what does anything mean? Nothing means anything. The universe in four quadrillion years goes into atomic death, right? Boop. Maybe, maybe not. I, I look, I don't know. I'm not a cosmologist, but you get what I'm saying. You know, certainly this podcast is absolutely futile. We can agree on that. Now, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can, if there's one thing we agree on, this is absolutely meaningless. Meaningless to the millions of followers that you have. I hope to arm wrestle each and every one of you. So, so I said, yeah, on that level, you're absolutely right. But I believe that existentialism is a humanism. And I'm, I, that sounds so smart. That's not, that's pure Camus, right? That's pure Sartre right there. That's, that's nothing. I'm, I'm just basically quoting. But in the sense that if the universe is blind to us, then we have the ability to step in and create that meaning for ourselves. And I would say that there's a biological imperative there because I'll bring it back. Watch me do it. I'll do it. Is the animal that we are, when we create the terrain of meaning, when we impose that terrain of meaning either individually or culturally, an itch gets an itch gets scratched. An itch gets scratched and we feel stuff. And I said, the other version is do the things that you intuitively want to do, create community, 
make other people feel nice. Make yourself feel nice. Feel nice. And this other chain starts to get enacted, right? And I believe that that's the ineffable thing where, okay, rationally, yeah, of course, no meaning. But we're not purely rational organisms, right? We have developed rationality, but there are layers of our experience, whether they are transcendent or whether they are material, they exist. Nevertheless, the subconscious mind is running our kidneys right now. It's running most of the show. It's running the vast majority of our sensory inputs that it's choosing to pay attention to and not pay attention to. So it would be foolish to think that the conscious experience is paramount. There's so much more going on underneath. And if we give you a boatload of ketamine, not the right phrasing. <laughs> not the, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? If we give you a completely appropriate dose of a controlled substance that allows you to shift gears enough to where you are open to receive some of this experience, it sets off a chain reaction. And I believe that we have solved a portion of the mental health conundrum in that combining that springboard with consistent daily commitment on a moment to moment level. Does this sound exactly like Buddhism? Because it might to some people. It, we've rediscovered Buddhism. I'm not, I'm not a genius. It's just, I think we've done it in a way that fits and aligns with 2023 realities. And it works. It works. Listen, how many sad people do you know? Infinite sad people. Let's co I mean, let's make, let's change the world. Come on. What are we even waiting for? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna, that was, that was fantastic. I'm gonna jump in. There are, my brain's firing in so many different directions right now. I think the place I want to kind of like drill in on are, is around, you mentioned like squishiness of the brain and, you know, some people might hear that and be like, oh, neuroplasticity, like we need to increase neuroplasticity. And I think what I'm curious about is what is it about ketamine it you use the word springboard it creates that springboard into let's say a slightly more squishy place of consciousness where that change that rewiring is possible what type of rewiring do you think happens both in the short term during the journey and then afterwards and and i'm also curious like how it's related to this this piece around meaning as well because on one level you could say you know you you kind of you integrate parts of your psyche that were exiled, you know, in traumatic memories from your childhood. And at the same time, it sounds like there's a more kind of existential rewiring where there's a, there's a sense that you're not alone in a meaningless universe. There's a sense that like meaning is kind of inherent in this process. And so how does that unfold, you know, maybe in, in a, over the course of someone works with you for like a few months, like what are the specific things that you notice and what are some of the specific practices that you think contribute to that radical transformation whereby someone walks in depressed and sad and anxious and a few months later they're like oh i feel great like, what does that look like that's so big i think i can confidently say i don't know which is a delightful position to, to step into uh i don't know uh, the chemistry is being elucidated on a daily basis right so the idea, it's funny, a patient just asked me, I think was it yesterday, literally yesterday, yesterday morning, I think it's basically the same question. And I said, for people who, ketamine is a funny drug, 
right? It works on multiple receptor sites, which is why it has, I, we believe, uh, these varying capabilities, right? It's used in as an anesthetic. It's used in pain management. It's used this. The use of it as a psychedelic is. I was going to say it's new. It's not new. It's actually they were doing this since from the very beginning. They figured it out very early. But as a predominant use in a sort of current clinical setting, that's certainly not its major use, which is, by the way, one of its incredible strengths is that we tell patients all the time, my chief nurse, he works at Children's Hospital as well. So he's used to working with little kids and he will tell patients, and I've adopted this, he says, the dose that I will give a eight-year-old is 8x what you will now be receiving. It is so safe. It is so safe. It's wonderful in that regard. Uh, I think it really puts patients' minds at ease. But what is happening on a chemical level, you see patients who are, for instance, uh, there's a patient that, that comes to the clinic and she is manic depressive suicidal and has been for many years. She's tried, as you can imagine, everything. And routine ketamine therapy keeps her from feeling suicidal. She is still sad. She is still sad. But uh, that's a really big change. That's that's a huge deal. So there is a chemical thing that happens, right? The, I don't love the expression, there's a chemical thing that happens because one, it's so shockingly vague, but also it separates this idea that there's chemistry and then there's psychology or personality or experience. Those things are obviously one in the same. To separate the two would be absurd. You can't have, like, how do you, if I remove the chemical from your brain, how are you going to feel anything? And vice versa, how can you do the opposite, right? If you put chemical in the brain, you are going to feel something, right? When people say, oh, I take Prozac, I don't feel anything, but you do feel better. Yes, I feel better. Okay. You're not like falling over and wetting yourself. I mean, that's like our threshold for experience of what I quote unquote am feeling and not, and not feeling is very, you know, it's not subtle. It's not subtle. And it's just a, as a side note, I think people ask a lot of the times like, oh, ketamine versus psilocybin versus MDMA versus whatever. I said, listen, go outside of a bar at two in the morning and tell me that alcohol is not a therapy drug. When you have 45-year-old grown men crying on each other's shoulders, tell me that alcohol is not a sufficient vehicle for transformative mental health in the right container, in the right container. Altered states of consciousness in general, right? We can do it through breathing. We can do it through literally just about anything, whether it be external chemical or internally modulated or something. It's just that changey thing, right? Promote the squish. There's my bumper sticker. Promote the squish. Well, intervene briefly on that. I, I like promoting the squish. I wonder if there were almost like different, and I think there are like subjectively, that there are different maybe psychedelics that intervene depending on what someone's experiencing. So I imagine ketamine is great for someone who's maybe having suicidal ideation and maybe MGMA is great for someone that struggles to connect with their feelings or has a lot of like self-judgment and criticism. Maybe psychedelics is good for someone who's a kind of materialist and existentially like numb. It, it feels like there are certain chemicals which tend to promote certain types of experiences, which might be the right type of squishy <laughs> to, to, use, to use that framing. I think that's fair in a, on a smaller scale. And I would agree with that. On a macro scale, I'm not sure it matters. 
but the psilocybin patients, as we tell what psilocybin is, because so, a lot of them are not drug naive, they've already had some, some experiences. I'd say, well, you know, patients, people, humans, they will take the psilocybin. It's like, oh, look at this leaf. Oh my God, you got to come see this. It's infinite. It's the universe, blah, blah. And so you find kind of the universe in the small, beautiful, natural, and it's transcendent and it's and then you tap into the universal oneness, beautiful consciousness thing. Ketamine is, I say, the opposite direction, right? Instead of micro in, it's deep, 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 deep disconnected to the point. I have people, this is not uncommon. I have people who will be quiet, quiet, quiet during the experience, quiet, 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 quiet. And in this tone of voice, they ask me the following. They have the mask on, headphones on, they're speaking into the void. Am I dead? In that tone of voice, they are questioning their annihilation in a voice of saying, I would like onion rings, please. Am I dead? To which I respond, no, you're not. And they stop, pause and they go, okay. And then go back in. Can you imagine what it takes, where you have to be in your consciousness to calmly ask the, the most important question of all time? Am I alive? Holy cow. Holy cow. And you get to that stage to answer your question from a few minutes ago, experientially, existentially, right? If you get a flavor of, oh my God, am I dead? Okay. Somebody just told me I'm not dead and I'm still thinking, right? So it's that weird fragmentation where I am both dead and very much still here. Okay. Am I God? That comes up less frequently. <laughs> Uh, but occasionally, and not, and obviously not in a mega maniacal way. Am I God in the sense of like, am I everything now? Because my sense of individual subjective objective thing has completely faded away, yet I still am conscious on some level. So now is everything me? Am I everything? Man, you're not going to get that driving in your car, listening to your favorite tune. Like, oh, I'm in the zone. I went running and I really was in the zone. Did you fade away into a universal consciousness? No? Well, then I would argue that maybe there's a different place that this takes you, right? Yeah, unless the music was the co on, on repeat and it somehow broke their brain and <laughs> cracked them open. <laughs> you know what? If we find that track, I will immediately call you. <laughs> honestly, honestly. <laughs> Although, if I can be a, a dick about it, I feel that maybe in, in a semi-proverbial sense, this is that track. This is that track. The koan is that track, right? This whole process is that track. It's just that it works on a The track is just longer, The right? You want a three and a half minute jam that Taylor Swift is going to sing to you. It's going to blow out your brain. You're going to become an enlightened Buddha. I would argue that maybe that's even possible, except that track needs to be about three years long. Do you think that the, um, whilst the, let's say the lead up can be longer, you know, someone spends five years in and out of meditation retreats, do you think that the kind of existential hangover that happens after that is more integrated? Because it's something that I've certainly experienced is, is like the, these psychedelics can feel like a rocket ship that will take you to what feel, you know, almost, almost like the end point. But then I kind of come back down and the next day, whilst I'll have the memories, I'm still in what feels like a pretty similar mode of consciousness. So do you have a sense of like, is the neuroplastic changes that come through meditations or contemplating koans is that is that longer lasting does it land more deeply in the system you have tapped that question is the we can end with that 
Uh, we won't, but you know, like this is the the crux of it, truly. And I will tell people this is this is that my exact metaphor is: you are a sixth grade science student, and I'm going to put you on the shuttle and take you to the space station. It will feel scary. It will feel weird. It will feel exhilarating. It will feel somewhat familiar because you're somewhat familiar with what you're going to experience. And it will give you this incredible view, this broad view that you could never have from down on earth. And then the you are going to come back down. That, that astronauts have. They talk about the overview effect where they actually That's see right. the, That's uh, right. from, the awe from space. The awe, the awe yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So you get, you'll get the awe, you'll get the we, as in you and I, you'll get the we, and you'll get the we. You get all... <laughs> You know, you'll get those things and then you'll come back down. And now you realize, okay, I need to spend 20 years becoming an astronaut. You are not an astronaut because you went to the space station, right? Jeff Bezos is not an astronaut. He went into space. Is he an astronaut? No, no one would say that. It's ridiculous. The, the drugs give you that experience and then you come back down. And to mix my metaphors, we spend time walking around the forest and we literally lose the forest for the trees. And this takes you up on a hot air balloon and says, that's where you need to go. And you realize, oh no, I've been going over this way. Uh, you know, I've been going south, southeast. I need to just be going directly south. And then the balloon comes back down and you can reorient yourself and keep going. And you have to keep going and you have to keep going. And that's the metaphor, right? That's the slow, steady change. And what this does is it gives you the ineffable experiences, whatever, the moments of awe, whether medical drug or otherwise induced birth of a child right massive experiences these types of things death of a loved one right these these types of experiences which is why of course you, you the standard literature people will routinely rate their first psychedelic experience on par with the most meaningful experiences of their lives right well why is that right on a chemical level huge dump serotonin whatever I, i'm not even going to pretend to be able to really accurately biochemically describe what it means to have a child being born in your arms i don't know i'm single i don't know so there's that glimpse that you get and then you come back down just like you said and i wouldn't qualify it as a hangover i think it's the opposite there is that sense of like oh that felt so good that felt so awe-inspiring that felt incredible and at first, this is why I say a series of visits, whether whatever you're doing the first time. And I think this is where a lot of the research gets it wrong. The first time is, wow, wow, I didn't know. And that's great, but that's not the thing. What I want you to come back for is the second visit is a little bit less wow, more familiar and just, whoa, right? I, the wow is exciting. The roller coaster is exciting. But that's not what the, what are we doing this for? Are we doing it for a roller coaster? Yeah, one and done. Awesome. Go in a safe place, have somebody keep an eye on you, go the distance. It's meaningful. It's exciting. It's interesting. I think it's fueled a lot of art. Fantastic. Are we trying to transform a system that is resistant to change? Okay, let's get more serious. Let's dig in. This is going to take time. And we're going to have a biochemical springboard, as it were. But go in there, again, it's just, I haven't lost track of your question, the experiential phenomenological thing, right? Go in there and now feel your way into it, feel your way through it. And that takes repetitions. It just takes reps. And let's see, did I cover the bases? Launch into space, okay, as a model, an inspiration. For, oh, you know, I think it's worth mentioning that when you come back and you do your meditation, 
whatever that is, right? The experiences that you can hold on to work as a good guide within your practice. I think, here we go, follow this metaphor. I think this is really apt. If you want to get big muscles, you know where to look. Go look at bodybuilders. They have the biggest muscles you can have. We have a clear, people, you know, we're not that advanced. We have a visual system that says, okay, big muscle. What did he do? She do. All right. We don't have, we don't have an Arnold Schwarzenegger for enlightenment. We're doing a who way, do you look to? But... Who do you look to? The Buddha? You, who, do you look to? How do you know? I, I, I guess the knowing comes through practice. I mean, someone like Ramdas, where, you know, you listen to enough of his lectures and it's like, huh, like this guy gets something. Or he's bullshitting you. Or he's bullshitting you. Sure. Yeah. Or he's bullshitting you. Right. You know what I'm saying? And, and, I, and I, of course, I don't think he is. That would never cross my mind. But you look at the Dalai Lama. There's not like a litmus test of like, it is, is he an, an older Asian okay. man that is bullshitting you? Or has he achieved something that is Olympic level, that thing? We don't have a clear litmus test. And I think as because of that, there's a lot less buy-in individually and culturally. We know what rich looks like. Yeah. You want to get rich? Harder to measure. Go start Amazon. You want to get jacked? Go take a bunch of steroids, hit the gym. Like We have a clear pathway, an, a clear end goal. And I would argue that in some way, taking people into these experiences gives them at least a taste, a sense, and oh my God. I've had a personal experience once, I'll tell you. I don't know. I think this is fine. A very, very deep psychedelic experience where I was with another person and uh, the details are not, I think, really that important. But I experienced a sense of compassion that I did not think was physically possible, humanly possible. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. I'm not a person of a small imagination. I think that I would imagine that that's what saints feel like. Maybe more. I mean, I don't know. But at the very least, it wasn't a, I've been compassionate four out of 10, and now I am compassionate six out of 10. It was... I have known what I thought was compassion, and now I have a whole different definition of the word. It turns out it's not the same thing. It was like a fax machine and a bicycle. They are not the same in kind. It's not like a bigger bicycle. Ah, oh, it's a faster bicycle. No, 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 no. You transitioned, and, and you know, I, I'm sure you can relate to this. Is it's a quantum shift, and now that is now a point where I can think to okay. When I say the word compassion, when I feel, you know, when I describe it, that is the target. Or it, it may not be the final target. Man, it is really so much more accurate of a thing. So that's where these experiences can, can take us. So experientially, why is it powerful? That's why it's powerful. I think we really get lost in this idea of, you know what we should develop is a psilocybin that you can't feel. I'm sorry, what now? What are we doing? Oh, you want a new SSRI? Cool. Great. That's important. That's going to have high utility. I think that's wonderful. Are we missing something big? There is controversy. I say yes. Definitively, categorically, yes. I, I was just at the MAPS conference in Denver, and that was one of the talking points. And I'm, I'm very much in agreement with you. And I think this actually ties into another curiosity I had in that I believe you've spent some time traveling in South America and presumably being with some of the indigenous cultures that, you know, have these medicines as part of their culture. 
And I think the question I have is, what is it that we're missing with the kind of medicalized model that we're funneling psychedelics in through, which may be missing part of the kind of the actual core medicine of it being, you know, within community and ceremony with a sense of sacredness, which is a word that the, you know, the medical institution would like, wouldn't touch with a 10 foot barge pole because you like, how do you measure sacredness? But what do you think? Maybe the question here is like, what have you learned from spending time with these people? And, and what are some ways that you think people like yourself can integrate those ideas into your practice? Uh, two things. I, I have to admit, I'm kind of thinking this on the fly. So this is subject to change. I think that the ayahuascaros of Peru could do their thing without ayahuasca. Hmm. Could you say more to that? In, in what sense? Uh, my sense is a friend of mine who has since passed away, he did his PhD on the ayahuascaros of Peru. Specifically, this is something I'm, I'm more familiar with than other traditions per se. And the cultural component I believe is stronger. How about this? You know what? Perfect example. When you go to a fundamentalist Christian church and you see people talking in tongues and they're not faking it, they haven't taken any drugs. These are people in our culture. This is not some sort of distant foreign language. Foreign... In America, you can go to a church tomorrow and watch people have a ceremony that puts them into a deep altered state of consciousness, drug-free. So Again, does it help? Does it springboard? Do I think it makes it, does it make it easier? For sure. And am I, again, please, there's a substantive difference between speaking in tongues in a church versus going and having, you know, your brain blasted apart with ayahuasca, certainly, but how long-term fundamentally different are those things? I don't know. I will say this though, transitioning slightly, I spent a little bit of time in Guatemala many years ago with a woman who was a Guatemalan native. She was the designated shaman of her village. And she was a very, very powerful female activist. Um, if you're familiar with Guatemalan history, it's, it's very fraught, very violent for many, many years. And I think that it's worth mentioning, and this is a good moment to say that is, is that the other piece that is really critical to what I do in my work is I'm not trying to get you to feel good to buy another Volvo. I'm trying to get you to feel good so you can turn around and make substantive change in the culture, on the planet, in your community. That is my Marxist that's actually a really stupid thing to say because I believe that that has nothing to do with Marxism. That has everything to do with being a person. John Stuart Mill would have said the same thing. Any thinker, no, no thinkers out there going, you know what you should do. You should get good for yourself and then just forget about it. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. And that, but that's the, but that's the thing is that we have this slightly skewed opinion that I need to feel better. I feel bad now. And everyone says, you feel bad now. You need to feel better. And one of the things I remember writing at some point recently saying that people will come in and they say, I'm so lonely. I don't want to feel lonely. My goal for you is, of course, I want you to feel better immediately. I don't like suffering. Suffering sucks, obviously. But my solution to feeling lonely is not to stop feeling lonely. My solution to feeling lonely is to feel connected. And I think that's, that's not wordplay. I think that's a subtle but very salient differentiation of the two things. So if we believe why do we, 
let's talk about something more fundamental. Why do we feel so shitty? Is it the nature of the human being to feel that way? I don't think so. I don't think it doesn't make sense. If you step back and think about it, it doesn't make sense. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's pain. Yes, we will die. Okay. Am I to believe that through 6 million years, we have just sat here and felt terrible about it the whole time? I don't believe that. I do believe that if you look at some of the traditions, right? Look at the Aztecs, for instance, and this is, this is a bit of a stretch, but just roll with me here. They had a whole philosophical culture that was existentialist in nature. And that was, you can look at their poetry. I can summarize a lot of it. Dance hard because you are going away soon. And of course, it, it, people talk about Aztecs, like, it's like chocolate and murder. That's all Aztecs are. Right? Chocolate and murder. Yeah, there's a lot of chocolate and murder, but there's been a lot of chocolate and murder all over the place. You know, it's not like Europe is somehow exempt from chocolate and murder. They just didn't have the chocolate. Europe is just like murder and murder. So the springboard isn't to feel good. The springboard is to feel good, to make everything else better. And to make everything else better, I think that it doesn't take a big brain to realize that that means to recommit to to each other and to our communities. And it sounds very kumbaya. And this is where the ineffable part comes in. I had a, literally, yes, I swear when I say yesterday, I mean, I, I'm not lying to you. Literally yesterday, yesterday, I swear to you, I'll bring her on. First time patient, first time ketamine treatment. She said to me afterward, we're doing our integration. I call it talking. We talk. <laughs> We talk afterwards. <laughs> we do an integration session. People love to ask me, like, do we do an integration session? I said, yes, I'll talk to you. <laughs> I'll talk to you about what happened. The the naming of things is so, is so funny, right? The medicalization, the medical right, medicalization of it, of it, right? Ah, we're now integrating. It felt like talking. I felt like we were talking. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're integrating. All right. Cool. Two hundred more dollars. Yep. Got it. Perfect. <laughs> what did you spend that money? Well, we were integrating. Shut up. We're not integrating now. Your whole life is integrating. Like every second you're integrating. She said, I felt that I was part of a tree and the roots were around me. And she said, and this is a very sensible, like, you know, thinky person. She said, the Gaia thing, man, I did not. I, she says, I have a new sympathy for the hippies. Her words. I said, yeah, I know. I get it. She said, and the roots, and, and they were part. I said, I know. I know what you mean. The words will fail you right now. Watch. She's like, I, I just don't know what this. I said, yeah, I know. I had a guy last week, 56-year-old man, who started crying about pilot whales. Pilot whales. He comes out, and he's like, the whales. What have we done to the whales? It's hysterical if it weren't real. If you saw it on a TV show, you'd say, my God. Could they have written something less original? But it's true. This is a real human being. And he feels the planet. He has a sense of consciousness about something that he didn't an hour ago. Will it fade? Yeah, of course it'll fade. That's not the point. Something changed that will never... He will always remember the fact that he flipped out and a grown 56-year-old man cried, cried in front of another grown man about pilot whales. I mean, it's hysterical. Say it out loud. I cried for 10 minutes about what we've done to the beached pilot whales. Ineffable. There are no words. There are no words, right? Love is everything. That's so stupid. Until you feel it, 
You know what I'm talking about. You can't talk about sex in a meaningful way unless you've had it. There was a, a former podcast guest that described it as, as effing the ineffable, which I thought was, was very well put. And yeah, as you're speaking, the words of Daniel Schmachtenberger, I think he talks about global intimacy disorder and how that's kind of like the root crisis that is beneath all of the other crises. And it sounds like these like rememberings, maybe like reawakenings are addressing that global intimacy, global intimacy disorder in a very meaningful way. Yeah. And, and then the, the other thing that was coming up for me was around this might feel free to just pass on this question, but I, I had a, I had a phone call with a philosopher called Christopher Bash last week and he, he'd done 73 high dose LSD journeys and like written a book about his experiences. And one of the themes that really struck me was this idea that he, he shared like suffering is grace was, was kind of like the, the pithy phrase that came from it. And. I'm wondering, like, what is your, maybe not the perspective that you share with, with clients, you know, if someone comes in and they're, they're miserable and you say suffering is grace, they'll probably slap you. It's not a very compassionate thing to say, but having experienced what you've experienced and having seen what you've seen, what is your view on what suffering actually is? Because for me speaking personally, it has been a, a vehicle for greater opening and compassion and, and joy, frankly, and feeling. And so I, I'm wondering, like, what have you learned about the nature of suffering through your own experience and through the work you've done? Uh, I'll start just to, to completely not answer the question, just kind of just very busy to say, I tell you, as someone who's done a fair amount of reading in my life, I really struggle with the global theory, guys, the theory of everything, guys. I have a hard time wrapping my brain around crisis of meaning, like these, the things that it's hard. I think it's hard. I think it's hard in the same way to encapsulate the ineffable of a LSD experience, for instance. I think it's also hard. Our brains struggle with trying to make really big things medium and trying to make really small things medium because we live in medium scale, right? We don't have any sense of atomic interactions and we don't have any sense of galactic interactions. That's not what these sense organs are made for. We don't have a telescope and we don't have a microscope. And um, sometimes I think that it's fun to think about those things, but it, they also feel like a little bit of a hobby thing. If I may be so bold, you and I both know the answers. Every nine-year-old knows the answers, right? Be nice. Stop dropping bombs on children. You know, do things that are meaningful and helpful and useful. What else do you, that's it. What, that, I don't know if we need much more than that. And yes, I understand that I'm oversimplifying things, but I think that overcomplexifying things is also a little bit perilous. Suffering, suffering uh, person, my essay on suffering. I believe that suffering is the litmus test between AI and humans. I think that's the carries water. It's clearly not logic. It's clearly not intelligence, depending on how we define it, et cetera. I think suffering is the thing. I don't know if non-biological entities will be able to suffer maybe i don't know but but for me until further notice that's the cutoff so that's not just me spouting about ai because i want to you know plug something put me on a podcast somebody i have an idea about ai somebody is ai popular now blockchain blockchain ai psychedelics oh you know what a hot take here you go here's your hot take you ready i think in three years no one gives a shit about psychedelics <laughs> yeah uh-huh yeah 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 sure i'll do it 
I'll do it. We'll, we'll put a pin we'll in ske- it. Come back to that. We'll, we'll schedule round two for this in uh, 20, 2026. Hardcore. You're like, oh, blockchain 2.0. Psychedelic. What were psychedelics? I don't even remember what that was. So suffering is the thing that makes us human. And to say that to a person who is suffering is completely wasteful in the moment. I completely agree with you. I think that suffering, what separates a adult from a child in a lot of ways is you have seen and experienced hard, bad things. It makes for compassion. Why do teenagers not give a damn? Because they can't cast themselves into the role of other people and they haven't had it hard that way. And they're certainly capable, right? You just, you fill the, the container which you are given, right? Which is why you can take kids and send them to a, a difficult part of the planet or town. And all of a sudden they'll come back and they'll be like, mom, oh my God, I saw this thing. I can't believe it. We need to do something. So they're certainly capable, but in, you know, in large part, it's, they don't have those experiences. So they don't have that point of view. Suffering, I feel with our pain patients, I'll speak personally. Every time I hurt myself playing a sport or something uh, or get sick or whatever it is, it creates unfortunately a fairly temporary set heightened sense of compassion and awareness and that's why i think a lot of people in the medical profession can be so callous because they haven't had that experience and uh, again tons of pushback i i know they're like oh you know what it's because they're so overwhelmed they're so overworked and because if they felt everything all the time it'd be overwhelming yeah all those things also true true but also, if you look at the callousness with which some unfortunate medical interactions go, it's hard for me to think of another alternative. And I have been there myself where somebody comes in in pain and I think, oh, okay, here's my, here's my pain patient, 330. Oh my God, right? That's a human being. So there is, I, I'm not sure I really understand what suffering is grace means. I don't mean that in a critical way. I mean that in a literal way where I'm not sure exactly what that means. But I can certainly attest to the fact that what I have experienced and what I have seen amongst other people is, is that the suffering is, um, it's something so critical to who we are. And of course it makes sense. Like biologically, it makes sense evolutionarily, right? Suffering is the thing we avoid more than anything else because it's what keeps us alive, right? We have to avoid suffering to stay alive. Otherwise, if you suffer, you die. Now, our mechanisms for gauging suffering and avoiding said suffering, I would argue, are really off kilter in a way where we need to excite our fight or flight instincts 0.00001% of the time in modern 21st century America, thankfully, right? Unless it's a car crash or you are being held up at gunpoint, which happens almost never to people in my universe, certainly. You know, I'm not, you know, you understand what I'm saying. And yet, and yet people are so frequently in that zone to varying degrees in disproportionately. It's not hard to imagine what having the fire alarm constantly going off is doing to them biologically, physiologically, psychologically. So the suffering, uh, I desperately want to say something really profound. I don't have like a good suffering is grace thing. Uh, I think it's important. I think it's what makes us human. I think that the underpinnings of why we have it is, you know, if I were a religious guy, or I mean, how about this? We can easily point to a lot of these 
the classic texts and how much of it revolves around suffering and the interaction between the deity and the person. And why have you forsaken me? Right? Why have you made me suffer? You have the option to not give me suffering. Why have you, O oh Lord, given me the suffering? Why? What a through line in Western civilization. Amazing, right? Like it's really just kind of about that in so many ways. Oh, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, my suffering. It's all about the suffering, right? And then you look at maybe a different tradition. I'm going to just mangle all sorts of stuff here. So just bear with me, right? Different perspective on maybe say a Buddhist perspective. There are tons of different Buddhist perspectives. I'm aware of that 3,000 years. Blah, blah, blah. Just go with me. You know, is maybe the suffering isn't a preordained, some sort of this superimposed. Maybe the suffering is built in and we should approach that differently. Again, we'll go, I bring it back to the very beginning in a certain sense where if you don't believe in a post-death world, suffering becomes a really critical thing that we need to attend to and understand because it exists and it's a guiding principle of how our lives unfold. So putting attention onto that is paramount. And I don't know if I was able to clarify my opinion here. I do think it's quite nuanced and sort of multivalent, but the attention to suffering is a bigger deal than the attention to happiness or enjoyment because we don't need to be happy and enjoy to survive. And our primal architecture, at least on a, the meat biological level, I can't attest to anything greater than that, revolves around that, right? Pain avoidance. Everything is pain avoidance. And figuring out how to manage that is probably at the heart of, of all of it. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that answer. Beautiful um, or confusing? I mean, be honest. It's just it's it's such a big no, question. I, I, mean, I mean, yeah, I, I think there are, there's so many different dimensions to it, honestly, and uh, it really depends on what someone's like constellation of life experiences are. And I think there are many different ways to relate to it simultaneously. So I, I think it is it is a it's a very complex topic, and it's also deeply interwoven with a sense of meaning as well. I think if you can find meaning in the pain in the suffering then that in some ways like unlocks everything because suddenly you're not avoiding anything at all if you can find meaning or, or, or value in it i'm conscious of time i've just looked at the time i'm like oh shit <laughs> there were so many other questions i wanted to want to run by you and i've got a few a few more kind of like quick fire questions but before we go there you mentioned before we hit record that you've, you've just written a book and I'm i'm curious if there are any any like ideas or anything that you feel like is worth dropping into this conversation that, that feels relevant to what we've been what we've been speaking to or what listeners might you know might find interesting? Holy cow! I think that just two nights ago I finished uh, the first draft. Finished, finished. Been kind of being. It's a book that's designed to shepherd people through their psychedelic process. Specific. This is specifically written for people at my clinic. Uh, I intend to take that program out to the world at some point, uh, maybe in the next six months or so. I have some patients who are w well-known folks who are, who are artists who are very excited. So there's some interesting collaborations coming down, down the turnpike. My goal would be to be able to get these types of programs out to people who don't have immediate access to go come to a clinic. I think that we can do a lot of this meaningful work with 
without necessarily having an in-person ketamine experience, whether that means getting them, uh, this is again, controversial, uh, getting them the ketamine through distance, through telemedicine. So we're exploring that very seriously. And even without that, there's a lot of fruitful territory there to say this. If I were to give someone advice and not, like this piece of advice, maybe nothing else, I would say, get with some big ideas and mull them over hard. The questions that you are asking and the experiences that you are having have been had by, wait for it, by greater minds, right? We live in a bell curve. We're probably somewhere in the middle. There have been some authors out there who are on the edges and they are gifted for whatever reason. This is the premise of, of the program. I believe that going in there and mulling over these hard questions can transform you. And if you combine that with a meditation practice, for instance, of just, I, I'm speaking your language right now, nervous system mastery. I, I think that's at first I was like, oh, those three words, that's too simple. Nope. I think you crushed it. I think it's, <laughs> I think you crushed it. Mm-hmm. Nervous system mastery. I, I'll be honest. I use that phrase in my clinic now. I do. And I say, you're not going to get rid of suffering. That's, that's a thing. That's, that's part of this experience. Can you master your nervous system? It takes an hour or two a day for years to learn to play a concerto. No one doubts that. No one doubts that. Why is there an assumption that you are somehow good at this? This misleads us constantly. It also feels like you're conducting an orchestra in a way. I think the the metaphor of the conductor and, and bringing it back into back into tune and like finding these kind of like discordant notes and and skillfully bringing it back is actually a perfect analogy for what is what is happening. I think that's absolutely right. And so we can talk about the different sections of the orchestra. We can talk about all of it. And again, I don't know the metaphor is some, at some point almost lose meaning. Just go in there, spend the time doing the dive, and there's such fruitful territory there. My goodness. And it's all the things that you've talked about a million times, I'm sure already, uh, both in your programs and I'm sure on other podcasts, is the best way to not learn to play a concerto is to jump from instructor to instructor to instructor to practice six hours once a month. It's not a metaphor. This is just the way the brain works. It's not a metaphor. To be an Olympic level anything requires daily consistent practice. If you want a better experience of your time on earth, Spend daily consistent practice time mastering the vehicle through which you experience reality. It's very straightforward. And from that, you will naturally arrive at the conclusions that tell you on a deep level, I should be doing meaningful things in the world and my community. I should be kind. I should be Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, right? For those that don't have that much education or maybe capability, but mostly education, it's important to give them a top-down, this is how you do it lesson. He's speaking about Christianity. And he said, for the people who are the, you know, the poo-smearing curious types, they will eventually come to those same moral, ethical conclusions on their own. Yeah, 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 totally. I believe that. Totally. I believe that too. Yeah, I really do. Nervous um, system mastery, if you want, you know, I know a guy who has a course. There's, um, <laughs> the, the link may or may not be in the show notes. <laughs> the link may, I may or may not be getting an affiliate fee for this. So, you know, it's, it's not complicated. I love talking about it. There's so many like, my God, neuroscience. 
amazing, amazing, amazing. Can we be honest? What are we going to learn? What are we really going to learn? Are we going to learn it's important to be nice? Are we going to learn it's important to sleep well? What, mm-hmm. what, is, what are so, we really so going to get to? So if let's say, um, and then we'll round this up in a moment, but if listeners were to take away, you know, let's, let's say, let's say, okay, I'm going to set aside 20 minutes of my day to do what Michael is, is telling me to do. I'm going to begin this process of making my brain inc- increasingly squishy and master my nervous system. What, like what is one, one practice that you found to be like disproportionately effective if someone was to dedicate 20 minutes to tuning up their own human instrument? I would take that 20 minutes and talk myself into spending an hour and a half. <laughs> doing what? Yeah. Doing what? Uh, doing, well, the outline of my program. Every morning you get passages to read and hopefully you contemplate them all throughout the day while you're doing your normal life stuff and that they those profound, meaningful ideas occupy your mind instead of, did I leave the gas on? I couldn't left the gas on. Did I leave the gas on? Oh my God, somebody needs to check on the gas. It will do something. It's a powerful machine. Give it a thing early in the morning. Contemplate all day. Come home. Write on it at night. Right? Do a practice at night. Meditate at night. Meditate as much as you can. Meditate in the moments. I told this cancer patient, I said, listen, I believe, and this is a tall order. I'm so acutely aware of this. If you want to change, you have to change everything. The Marine Corps, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. So take that 20 minutes and convince yourself that every second of your day is a series of options to transform. And I won't be so mean. I will answer your question. I will say this. Take everything that you do, everything that you do, and try to do it at 90% the pace. Not at 50% the pace, not at some sort of strange pace is going to get you fired. Just a little bit slower. And what I have found is that in that gap, that narrow gap, presence appears and it becomes not automatic. And all of a sudden you are present in the moment. And that presence is the thing that nervous system mastery is about. And everything kind of builds from there. The space between stimulus and response. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just that little act of slowing down, uh, a surgeon friend of mine once told me about how um, he had an assistant in the operating room and he was making some mistakes and he stopped and said, you need to slow down to speed up. Yeah. Less haste, more speed. Right. What all the, you know, all the bumper stickers. Absolutely. Just slow down a little bit and allow grace or whatever word we're using, change, meaning, presence, something, dopamine, blah, blah. Who cares? Try it. Try it. Get back to me. Well, you know, email in the link. Let me know how it goes. I think that that is powerful, powerful, transformative stuff. Love that. That's a, that's a great experiment. So um, this has been so much fun. I mean, I have like, I think we could keep going for another three hours at least. So I, I actually do want to have a round to it at some point. For listeners who are like holy shit i, I want to learn more about this what are ways that they can get in touch with you potentially learn more about your work this forthcoming book and what other resources would you point people to oh man just email me literally just email me dr michael yang at gmail.com yeah post it post my email you know what even if you disagree i would love to hear it honestly i would i would love that even more because as confident as i am in these ideas they're only based on my experience. I'm so well aware of that. And I would love to have those conversations. The website for our practice is getcare.com. That's C-A-I-R-E. Um, so that you can post that in the link that talks about specific ketamine practice. 
I'm pretty easily findable. To be perfectly honest, I give all my patients my cell phone. So once you're in the, <laughs> no, listen. Once you're in the family, yeah. you're in the family. I believe in being there for for people when they when they need me, and I turn off the phone when I go to sleep. Otherwise, here here I am. I'm very I'm very easily accessed. Great. Well, um, I, I like to close these conversations and this one is particularly appropriate based on what we've talked about with this line from Rilke and he says, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually without noticing it, live your way into the answer. So with that quote in mind, what is the question that is, is most alive in your consciousness right now? And, and what question would you leave our listeners with to chew on throughout the day while they're going so at easy. speed? So easy. I just return it right back around. My question is, was he right? Was he right? What you just laid out, I, I could have saved you an hour and a half of talking to me about. Is there a profound change available to you by considering the deep questions? Is there just in the process of the consideration, is there profound change there? I believe yes, personally. But the, that quote is, couldn't be more spot on. Yeah, that's it. Michael, thank you very much. This has been really fun. It was my, my really deep pleasure. I, I hope we can do it again. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life. Thanks for listening.